My name is Dwayne Default, and welcome to Selling SaaS, a podcast that's built to get you the best advice from the top experts for go-to-market strategies, sales, and product-led growth. Now let's get into today's episode. One company in particular, it was, it was really... I want to say sad, but it was unfortunate that it was the my, the mindset of the organization. They come in and they they needed someone to come in and revamp their sales process. I'm like, okay, cool. So I got some data, and like their in their MQL conversion was like one percent. I'm like, oh my gosh, like that's terrible. Your sales team's terrible, right? And they and and their opportunity conversion was like five percent. I'm just like, what is going on? Come to find out, they didn't have product market fit. And they were dumping six figures a month into Google to go and confirm product. They weren't using like the real way you should go and confirm product market fit. They had got all this funding early and just blasted it over staff sales team was just dumping over six figures into Google to try to drum up this, this fit that they needed, this fictitious fit. And they weren't tracking anything. They had all these desperate systems and they were just hoping that they were going to, at least from my perspective, they were hoping to find product market fit from doing these things. And by the time that happened, they were going to make up the losses from overspending on the ads and hiring salespeople to go and get a series B to make up for it. It's like, that was the model. That was the model for three years where people would get to market with something with all of this money and then not pay attention to how the data is kind of coming out or where certain things, like you said, the effectiveness of the dollars that you're spending. Like when I came in and I saw that, I'm like, you understand that 90% 90% of the budget that you have allocated to these paid campaigns is doing nothing, like not even driving proper fit customers or proper fit leads. Like I, I removed, I brought their budget in like two months, I brought their budget down to like 15K. And even then, like the leads disappeared. So the leads disappeared. So the sales team is freaking out. They're like, what are we going to do? And I'm like, well, let me re, I had to revamp the CRM and go <laughs> reconnect. Like I, I have spent the first two months just redoing everything, like literally just going back through and trying to find attributable data sources for proper fit, what was supposed to be proper fit, and then had them retarget, remarket. And we were able to drum up some business doing that. But it was like, gosh, it was just how long did they go with this being the main focus and main advice? Right. Lots of first time founders, lots of people that had never been in the industry, like for yourself. Yeah, you're a first time founder, but you come from the industry. So you have the experience and knowledge knowing this is what good looks like. A lot of first time founders had an idea, went and got some coaching on how to make the idea look good and then got a whole bunch of money for it. And then no experience actually building the process out or, or what data they should be collecting. Like it was just it was mind boggling to see this. And it's like, you're smiling. It's like, you see it too. It's, it's, it's crazy. And, and I think that companies like yours, dream data is probably going through a little bit of like a happy dance because all of a sudden now you see all of these gurus and like all these articles about, Oh, go collect your data. And you're like, bring it on. Let's go. Let's, let's have this real growth happen because now, now you're sitting in that spot where, people understand like, oh, we don't actually have any data to make good judgment or good decisions. We need to go get that. And you're like, hey, we're over here. We're one of the few that can do it. The problem that that they end up saying is kind of like the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. And the same thing with like with data is that you want to start before you need it. So if you just like, hey, then you're you're maybe you're risk being blind. So it's, it's just 
got to be part of your culture all the way through that when we make decisions, we need to have like a data set that supports the decision and we scale the things that we can clearly see that works, whether that's outbound, inbound or whatever it is. Yeah. And you're not biased towards one channel because you understand the data. Like one, one of the things I always tell people, I'm like, it's better to track everything. I'd rather see someone have too much data than not enough. It's better to track it all and not need it than all of a sudden need it and have zero of it. Like I, I would rather see that than nothing being tracked. Even sales data, like sales, sales activity data, too many to, and this, this is not, this is trackable stuff. Like a lot of the things we're talking about is controllable. What really gets me on the, like once marketing has technically done their job and they get into into sales, they don't start tracking sales activity until it's in the opportunity pipeline. What about everything pre-opportunity? What, what what happens between MQL and opportunity? Like too many companies aren't tracking that. They're like, oh, well, they make phone calls with their cell phone. Like, so have them log it, have them call through a tool that does it. Like you have to understand what impacts the most previous step or previous stage in the customer lifecycle, not just opportunity pipeline or opportunity velocity. It's like, cool, well, if, if you have a really great opportunity velocity, well, what? how can you get more of those opportunities? Always oh, going to dial the phone more. It's like, well, no. <laughs> yeah, you have to control the, the, the influences right before the most previous stage. And if you don't know what that is, you're just guessing. Yeah, and it's a very typical use case for us that we help people understand how many of those leads that you collect actually make it through to the sales opportunity stage. Because that's such a sanity check that, Okay, you brought in 1,000 leads, but how many of those leads actually make it all the way to like a real sales opportunity? And then what you want to spend your resources on are the campaigns that create sales opportunities and then get rid of the rest of those 900 leads that, that didn't, that was not worth any money for you. So how do you combat the argument where marketing is saying, well, we shouldn't be tied to a metric we can't impact, like revenue or opportunities? Because there's that that sales element where it's like, well, sales is the one closing it. Sales is the one that's qualifying the opportunity. It's like, how do you have that conversation with the marketer who is just stuck on the belief that they only need to be measured on MQLs? Yeah, no, that, that you can say, and I said, oh, this is almost the purpose of our tool is that we for it we have all customer journeys, and you can then like jump between pipeline stages, so you can like be analyzing the MQL stage, but then with a click of a button, you can see. Of those campaigns, how many actually made it to opportunity or to, to real revenue? So it's actually become super transparent about which campaigns uh, yield pipeline and revenue and which campaigns are just producing like inflated uh, amount of leads. So like, like for our company, like our best customers are the companies that want to be where they actually want to be accountable for, for revenue, yeah. whereas the stereotypical markets that doesn't want to be accountable for revenue is probably not a good fit for for what we do at uh, at Dreamlitter. As soon as you said connectivity on the accountability, I just I feel marketers just squirming in their seats and getting upset because it's it's forcing the change. It's the same thing in sales. I see it all the time in sales where all of a sudden sales managers are now accountable for actually accountable for the performance of their team, not just help like stepping in on deals, helping them close. It's like, that's not scalable. And that's still a mindset inside of sales orgs that go and get a whole bunch of funding. They have these old, older incubators or accelerator programs that have these individuals who were in the role 20 years ago, that's giving advice and their advice is still based on 20 years ago. And they're like, Oh no, the sales manager needs to be directly involved in, in the deal. 
well, then you have an entire sales team that doesn't know how to close a deal. Like that's not scalable. Like you can't, you can't continue to do that. It's the same thing. It's like, oh, we're focused on on the marketing side. It's like, oh, we're we're focusing on our logo and our colors and making sure everyone is commenting and posting around the right naming convention for our product. It's like, no, (laughs) let's not do that. Let's focus on these things over here. The data says it actually works. Like it's just there's so much poor thinking that's going on because it was before the time we could track the effectiveness of these things. You said something during that's really like super important about like, be super careful about who you take advice from, like, because the game is so, so, so different today. So somebody that was highly successful 15, 20 years ago, to some degree doesn't understand the game today. So the advice you might be receiving might completely set you off on a wrong course. The advice thing is interesting because People still see, and this like this we we could probably get a lot of negative attention for this, but it's it's the same thing about like colleges, like a lot of people still on resumes or on job applications, like oh you need to have an MBA, ten years of experience doing this. It's like the person that's got ten years is the interesting thing. The person that has ten years of experience in a specific role that hasn't seen a lot of work outside of that role has a very siloed way of thinking. I would rather see someone that has 10 years of experience in different environments that learn the modern way of doing things. I don't know how many times I've been in the discussion with a founder and they're going through different candidates. And it's like, they've got some like picturesque candidates that they're talking to. They've 20 years in the business. They've got their MBA and all this stuff and blah, they've been with all these big logos. And then I'm like, okay, have them walk you through what their analysis would be of the current marketplace for your guys' industry and how they would go about adjusting that over a three to six month period of time. And that person can't do it. Or they do, and it's a very old school traditional way or everything's based on hiring more people. Like if if they're if and and that's a struggle because then these people demand high salaries. They try to waive their degree or their experience at these big logos as like their authority. And it's like, well, that that's not effective anymore. I'd rather have the person who is like in their mid twenties, who, uh, who has, maybe they have a degree, maybe they don't. I'd rather them have an, a, a, the equivalent of experience. Right. But it's like, how have they been effective recently in that space? And same with sales too. So it's like, it's, it's challenging to see the same level of effectiveness that we did, you know, eight, 10 years ago, be relevant today without them making leaps and bounds forward. So there's, there was a guy I had on the show a couple months ago. Uh, he owns a company called Scale Matters. It's a RevOps shop, but they created their own software, Scott Stauffer. But he's been the CEO of, of these companies probably four or five different times, a co-founder. And you, by the looks of him, you would think he is aged out of the industry. But he's so intelligent when it comes to the stuff we're talking about because he's in the role. He's in the business. He's not some CEO of a thousand person corporation. He's in it every day. And you can have a way. It was one of my, is one of my favorite conversations we're having today. But with him, it was really great because it was connecting all the other pieces we're talking about. But if you're not in it, like if you're a VP of marketing, or you're a CMO and you're sitting on a team of a hundred people, like, I feel like you're too disconnected from what's going on in a day-to-day in the threads, in the UTMs, looking at the data to know what the strategy should be. And so it's it's unfortunate because those tend to be the people that get the biggest voice and the biggest stage, and that's just not reality. You catch people who can actually do work and not just sit and talk. And don't know 
how to always test for it, but I, I typically tend to insist on getting two references from them. So you can speak with people that know them and hear whether they can actually, can he actually sit down and can he do real labor in this industry? And what's the, another thing that I was thinking about as you were talking is that I think I never actually look at people's education at all, where like where they went to school. I just go straight and see what roles did they have, what did they do in these roles, and like I couldn't care less about which school they they, they went to initially, because that's not where you learn your craft. That's what when you get to to a real job. Yeah, I agree. It's been a while since I've looked at if they're if they're early twenties, like maybe twenty two, twenty three, then maybe. But even then, like because because the, the, then I look at what's been their history of success. Okay, they're 23, 22. Did they go to school? If they didn't, what did they do in that, you know, four year period of time that they've been out of high school or whatever grade that they, they left school in? But other than that, it's like, if you have a degree, how are you using it? You know, the cool, like I've, I've met CMOs, VPs that went to school for theater, you know, great, great. But it's like, they're not using anything from their degree. It's been 15 years since they've been out of school. It's like, okay, like, show me what you've done in the last three to five years. If you did something seven years ago, cool. But like, did you repeat it? Or do you have a history of success in that one thing that you put on your LinkedIn profile? Is, is there something, you know, and, and like you said, someone who can do the work, like, what is the work you can do and not just talk about? Exactly. I think that's hard to spot, but you have to be so careful about it. Yeah. Well, it's like hiring, hiring so challenging, because it's a guessing game. Like, and, and the whole... I think the the most interesting argument to have in business is this whole stigma of taking too long to interview people. There's this whole, there was like that whole phase where it's like, oh no, if you know it's a good fit, like, why don't you hire quickly? It's like, no, 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 no. Like hiring is a guess. Like no matter how you can, you cause a candidate can prep all of their references. A candidate can like over, they can hire a resume specialist. They can hire a, an interview coach to like go through these things and it's still a guessing game. But then when you hire them and then all of a sudden you're like, this person can't do this one thing we need them to do. What do we do? Well, you got to fire them. Like that's business. We're not here to create relationships. <laughs> like it sucks. I think we get too optimistic on people's behalf as well. I think like, are you an optimist? Like when you interview people, do you, you, you want to find the good and you, you have to like convince yourself otherwise. Yeah, I think it's I like that. Then obviously, then when you have more candidates, you can be more critical. Yeah. What do you think, being on your side of things, and I know we're kind of getting close on time, but in marketing and the way data is in the in the business world right now for B2B SaaS, like what do you think some of the most valuable skill sets are? I think it's about curiosity and a true interest or passion in the game. What I mean by that is like, I, I talk with the, a good friend of mine. He said that like people don't care about marketing as we care about marketing. And what he means by that is like some, they go to work, they do their job, then they go home. But I go to work and I deeply care that this is, this works. If it doesn't work, I need to understand why is it not working? <laughs> like, can I configure it differently? And then I go back and I try again. If you can spot those people that has this kind of, I don't know if you want to call it like killer instinct or like just deep passion about winning. Yeah, <laughs> maybe it's an obsession, but that is kind of, I don't know if that's a skill or like a personality trait or whatever it is. I think there is, is a framework that you can be taught. Like I think people used to refer to it as growth hacking, but really it's just 
applying a methodology to how, like, and let's not get started on that word, but a methodology about, okay, I deliberately write down my ideas. I try to take a rational decision about what is actually the best, the fastest, the most valuable idea. And then I go out and do this one first. And then I let a month go by and I look at the results. We do another brainstorm. We do another rational decision. And this kind of having a, a methodical framework that you actually, you deliberately do stuff constantly rather than just, you know, from one day we do this, the next day we do this. We don't look at the results. We don't learn anything. If you really like try to like rationally write down why are we doing the things we're doing, go out and try it, look at the results, learn. And then that process, that is repeatable if you kind of learn the craft of it. Why do you think people don't do that? One thing, it's fair enough that you are not experienced. So you don't know that you have to be like mindful of your resources. Another thing is that they probably get thrown a bit around in, in Mark. Then the CEO comes and, hey, I heard this podcast and he said you should do X, Y, Z. Yeah, I call those the book of the month CEO. Like, yeah, it's a sad reality. I think people, because I love that the way you, so you use like, you said the word rational a couple of times. And I feel that people need to learn how to detach themselves from the process. They put too much of themselves in the thing that they're doing. And it's like technical founders, the, the founders that come in that build the product themselves and then they're founder-led sales and then it's marketing-led or, or founder-led marketing. And it's like them, it's like their own skin is on the product and they can't detach from the process of building it. And then they get blinded by the emotions of when their preconceived ideal customer profile isn't what's purchasing and using it. And they're like, that's not what it was built for, right? It's like, well, that's what people are paying you for. Let's look at that. There's something in that. Right. And I truly believe that people and myself included, I get I get deep into things like even the editing of this show. Sometimes I'm like, oh, this is so cool. I love the blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I pay a team to do this. Like, get out, of, get out of Adobe. Right. Like, stop paying for your Adobe subscription because you don't even use it other than to make stupid corrections on things. But it's like we need to pull ourselves out of the emotional piece of building things and we need to detach ourselves and it's i think that's one big thing that a lot of people are struggling with right now so i, I like your framework i think you should the it's but it's important not to lose the intuition and the passion as well so it's kind of you need to remember to play like a left and right brain game like when you're brainstorming just let your intuition and like what are you passionate about but then as you say you need to take a step away from it and detach yourself from what felt like the most passionate thing. And if that's the hardest thing you could do, is there something that is a lot easier than you can go and execute within 10 minutes or something like that, then it's probably the speedy one you want to go warm for rather than the hardest one you can go for. I have something on my whiteboard you'd appreciate. It's as I walk into my office. So I have a gym on the other side of this wall and then I have my office here. And so I'm, as I'm walking into this door on the whiteboard, it says they will never care as much as you do. And it's just a hard reminder. It's a hard reminder to be like, and underneath that, it says <laughs> obsessions are healthy. <laughs> I had to write that. Yeah, it's like, but it's a reminder because I'll get upset. It's like my team, you know, and it's, and I have obsessions with certain things or like data and analytics. I'm working with a client. I'm like, no, we need to figure this thing out because you can't. Like, I don't feel good as an outside third party, as a consultant coming in, giving you the green light on this decision to optimize this part of the campaign because we can't figure it out. It's like, I, I don't feel good about this. And like, sometimes 
that's a detriment because it's perfectionism and call it what you will or whatever. But then also there's like, that's healthy because you need that, le- you need that level of self accountability to where it's like, you don't know what you know, as Chris Voss would say, the black swan, like where are the black swans hidden in marketing, right? It's all in the data, but it's, you have to have that little bit of self-confidence and obsessions to go and find the answers and execute on them. And last little bit on that, I've realized that a lot of founders, a lot of people, creators, solopreneurs, team leads, whatever, there has to be that separation of you're either the one figuring out the strategy or you're the one executing on the strategy. When you have to do both of them, that's when you get in your own way and it's really hard to detach from it. And and I found like once you have the ability to have team, you can recognize the fact that either you're an, you, you execute or you figure it out. And then the best companies, the best CEOs, the best leaders are the ones that place themselves in that spot. Like Ben Horowitz has a couple books on that where he talks about CEO type one, type two. And they, they team CEO type ones have a management team of type twos. CEO type twos have a management team of type ones because it has that separation of focuses that allows them to complement each other. And so for me, there are certain areas of, of my business and clients' businesses that I like being the one to figure it out. And then there's other parts where I like being one to execute it. Like, like this show, I like being the one to execute because I love these conversations. Like they're so much fun. But there's other parts of like writing a blog. I couldn't write a blog to save my life, <laughs> but they happen as a team. So it's, there's that separation of focuses that allows you to detach. And I think that's one of the biggest struggles that a lot of founder CEOs go through. It's like, well, I'm figuring it all out and I have to execute on the things. And so when you can figure out like where your strengths are and then bring someone in to complement that, that's when you're able to scale faster without the emotion. At least that's from my experience. I don't know what yours is, but maybe it's close. Maybe it's not. I think it generally, I think what we're talking about here is that making sure that your team is diversified, thinking differently is extremely valuable. Like if you're very intuitive, then group together with a very rational person. Or if you're very rational, find somebody who's a bit more quirky and creative. Yeah. Yeah. It's like that yin and yang thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> big big uh, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It, it helps though. Cause it's like, you got to. When, when you're in business, you have to be able to go high level and be in the clouds, but then remember like, okay, we got to hit publish on that post today. <laughs> like, you got to be able to bring it down and you need those people to hold you accountable on company. But yeah, well, I don't want to take any more of your time. I appreciate you being here. You know, so any closing thoughts, like last thing, if, if, if people only heard this one part of the show, you know, what do you want them to walk away with? I think the, the 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 one question that particularly the marketing uh, marketers of your your listeners is, I would advise them to always have this conversation about how do we produce revenue or like why are we doing the things we do, and don't hold that narrative just to themselves, but go out and test it out and like go to the VP of sales and explain him this and go to the CFO and test that narrative. Do they buy it as well or is like like can't they see the connection between why are we doing X Y C? And then it's probably not a good idea if you can't explain why are we doing these things. And then whenever you make decisions about scaling stuff, that's when you need to bring bring data. And you probably want to start collecting that data before you need it. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Make Simplify it, communicate it, and then track it <laughs> is what it all needs to come down to. But hey, Stefan, I appreciate it. You know, a great conversation. We'll have to do this again later this year and kind of see like a version two of how everything goes this year. And then, yeah, if you guys ever need anything, you know, by all means, I'm here. You can ping me, shoot me an email, have a conversation. But until then, I appreciate you. Great. Thank you, Dwayne. 
Thanks for listening to another episode of the Selling SaaS Podcast. And if you got value from today, please leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. 